Okay, I got my thoughts together. Perfect. You said that just after I started recording. <laughs> Welcome back for this week's Cognitive Bias. How's it going, everybody? How you doing? So, Kerp, what are we talking about? Oh, we're not going to like banter at the top. Actually, the reality <laughs> oh, is I need to stall because I lost the tab in my browser. Oh, no. oh okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Hon- honey, I, I thought we were just getting straight down to business. I'm sorry. Let's, do you want to go to a movie first? Do you want to? Uh, no, you know, we're there's, good. There's, there's, we can get sushi. It's fine. It's fine. We, we don't need to kill air at the top of this okay. one. It'll be fruitful. Yeah. The law, okay. la- law of the instrument. The law of the instrument. Which, which is, by the way, in terms of like top 10 like name intensity rankings, that's pretty good. Right? Yeah. Okay. So what an is the law of the instrument? An over-reliance on a familiar tool or methods, ignoring or undervaluing alternative approaches. Quote, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Unquote. Right. Which is <laughs> the, the quote apocryphally attributed to Abraham Maslow in the 60s. Um. So this is this is the the idea that when we go to seek to solve problems, we lapse back into our available problem solving heuristics or tools as opposed to finding new, potentially better suited ways to solve a problem or to think about a problem. Is that how you understand this? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Now I wanted to I actually wanted to try something only a little bit different uh in this episode and I wanted to front load the part where we say so what um because I don't feel it fair to the listener to have to to sit through us faffing about listen it for to us talk minutes. for 15 minutes before we yeah. get to the moral that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, let's just let's front load the moral and, and give that a try and then we'll we'll see how that works out and we'll shape it up. Um so so what do you think of when you think of the the so what here? How would one live a better life if they were aware of the law of the instrument? The, to me, awareness of this existent bias creates the freedom to know that I, that, to trust the tools that I do have, by which I mean the mental models that I've created. I, th- this is like a dump valve. It's almost like a compression or something algorithm that lets me go, okay, you you're aware of the reliance on tools so you can really quickly check like you'll catch it if you're falling into the hole of picking the wrong one of your heuristics in the context of what you're trying to solve because once you're practiced at own an awareness of the law of uh, law of the instrument you can go okay do these instruments fit though and then you check before you even start applying the the wrong one, ideally. Or at least you have that sub-level awareness of sort of, okay, am I just executing on, you know, a, a, a biased heuristic or not? Yeah. Knowing that I'm biased to possibly be, like, do I feel too comfortable with this tool? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I should take a second look at my reasoning. Yeah. Um, and... I'm I'm going to go a step further for that. So if we go back to the Maslow quote, 
the law of the instrument becomes a challenge for us, not just because it decontextualizes an individual decision into a habit, but that the decision we may make to pick up a particular tool may be really poorly suited simply due to behavioral inertia and we're picking up the tool we know and we're picking up the tool that we've we've worn a good grip on um and when we remember that that when we go to solve problems we have the propensity to over index on solutions we already really clearly understand if we can create a little bit of space for ourselves in the action selection process and that little we can create a little gap of time to say okay I know I want to solve it this way. Is this the right way to solve it? Or is this the way to solve it that allows me to use a way I, I already know of how to solve things that might be kind of like this? And we can do some quick math. And if we have the ability, if we, if we do that, that, that calculation, and the answer ends up being, nope, this is the right tool, then we can proceed. And if the answer ends up being, look, man, like, I know it's not the right way to go about it, but, and then we pause and say, okay, so here we're in the bargaining calculus. Do I have the time to learn a different, better way to do this? Yes or no. Okay. How much time would that be? Is that within scope? Um, would my ability to become good enough with that new tool compared to being pretty okay with this current tool be such that even with a lot of time, I could still get the same kinds of outcomes or better. And if we look like we're in a place where it's, nope, you are so constrained that you just need to move here and you need to move quickly. And even an 80% solution with this tool is better than a 90% solution way later with a tool that you could theoretically be good at one day, given a lot of time and sweat. Well, then, man, you got to just move on and do it. But if that answer becomes, no, actually, you have the breathing room to learn a new way and think through how to do this properly in a new context, then that time you took to pause and, and work out that math for yourself is, is really worth it. So, so an understanding of the law of the instrument gives us a reason to want to, to pause there and run that quick calculation. What are the trade-offs in, in doing this with the hammer I know versus picking up a new hammer? Or, or the trade-offs with a hammer that you are aware is not the right one, but that can still f effectively complete the, like, it's like, look, yeah. I got to walk all the way across the room to pick up the real hammer. I got to bang this one nail in. I have a fat wrench. <laughs> It'll be okay. Maybe it breaks the wrench. It's not going to be perfect, but you get the thing done. Like, you know, there's context where it's like, you know, we don't have the money and I could do this with a spreadsheet. We'll just get it done instead of purchasing the analytics platform. But like the awareness that you're using the poor one too lets you make more nuanced decisions about that, that yeah. stuff as well. Yeah. And, and that's why I like thinking about this in terms of um, the, the, so what of this really is just run the trade-off math. As long as before you're doing the, the tool selection process, you're just running the trade-off math, you'll probably make a better decision. Or rather, you know, in keeping with our theme, you'll make a less shitty decision. A less shitty decision, yeah. So the thing that made me think, though, in your, in your description was, do you think as we get older, 
our tendency to fall prey to the law of the instrument increases way higher, way higher. So I was thinking about this at the top of the episode. About like the resistance inside of my company to use Slack instead of email, or like never mind the right tool part of this, but like just just like inertia against adoption of new things. Really, you really seem to calcify as you age, and a lot of times it's like guys there is project management software that exists now. It's magical compared to a spreadsheet. Yeah. And they're like, nah, I know how to do a spreadsheet. Yeah. And it's definitely worse with the older people that have been using Kirp. spreadsheet for longer. Yeah, but Kerp, <laughs> so, let's go back to it. Kerp, what, what are the two factors that rule everything around me? Uh, Pareto optim- op- optimality. <laughs> And I don't remember the other one. And, and temporal discounting. <laughs> temporal yeah. discounting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Just, I, I hate to say it, man. Everything is proto optimality and temporal discounting. Yeah. I mean, I, I, do I learn Slack today or do I just kind of kick this down the road when I'm going to have to be forced to do it eventually? Um, and is Slack the right tool? Or sorry, or, or let's go back to the, with the, the productivity software. Yeah. Is, is doing this in a spreadsheet? the right way to do it? No, but I know how to do it and I can do it fast. And it's basically the equivalent of doing it 80% as well as if I'd done it in a, a proper piece of software. Um, right. And that like that trade-off math of like, look, man, I just got to get it done. Was it done right? No, it's done 80% right, but fuck it, move on. We've got other stuff we've got to do. Is is That's proto-optimality and, and temporal discounting. Um, and But you asked a really important question. It was what I was gathering my thoughts on at the top of the show about like, does this get worse as we age? And I'm I'm gonna like we're we're gonna use age here in an in a information processing system way and not in a like senescent cell kind of way. Um, because I think that a lot of the law of the instrument is can can be viewed and understood through a a framework of habit learning and a framework of thinking about the explore exploit trade-offs in selecting behaviors in a complex adaptive system. And here's here's narrowly what I mean cuz I'm not going to get into a I'm not going to expound on explore exploit, but in every complex adaptive system that's learning that's an agent that's learning about an environment, um, for an agent to, to novelly generate new goal-oriented behavior in an exploratory and self self-learning and self-directed reinforcement learning based way. One of the one of the things you want of your agent's learning system is there to be a drive to explore the environment, so to to learn new things about the structure of reality, and a counter drive to exploit a known facet of reality. So to to take a thing that's learned works and then just run with that. Um, and this trade off of explore versus exploit is one of the things we have to think of encoding in the reward systems and like motivated state behavioral controller systems for intelligent intelligent adaptive systems you need a, you need a thing that wants to go out and check things out and then when it finds something that's particularly high value to work with that for a long time until the trade off the cost the opportunity cost and switching cost is bad enough that it is now favorable to continue to explore the environment some more and so when I think of the law of the instrument, I think of getting stuck in an exploit phase where I know that in theory, with, with further exploration, 
there is a different local optimal answer to this problem, but I'm kind of stuck in a, in a, in a local optima for now. And I'm going to exploit the local optima and I'm going to continue to use this tool even past a point where it has opti- a good utility. Um, and I'm, I'm really just doing a good enough kind of job using this tool. Um, this, this to me like screams explore exploit problem. And, and we're under-indexing on explore and we're over-indexing on exploit. And to the extent where it becomes a bias is the extent that it's become a problem and we're making bad decisions because of it. And that's where then we should be thinking, okay, now how do I, how do I unglue that either internally or in an incentive way to, to continue to push out? And this is for like, where rubber hits the road here, practically, why in every engineering organization I've, I've ever led, um, there's a really high value from the top down on learning counts as work. Learning counts as work. That's 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 time that needs to be like booked and accounted for. And learning new things and learning new frameworks and learning new tools has to count as like ticketable time in a project, um, or else you're going to be permanently stuck in the exploit phase. And you're gonna you're you're gonna create incentive structures for people where they never are free enough to go back out and continue to explore new and better ways to proceed. The What's interesting about the context that you presented there, I think, is the idea of like what I would call, I don't, I don't know if time compression or time dilation is the right way to think about it. But like when I talk about it in terms of software adoption, right, and we talk about project management software or whatever, and the resistant, like the resistance of the older people at my company to adopt these certain new things. You're right. Like that's limited by this sort of idea of the passage of time that is limited to single humans, sometimes a tribe experiencing the rotation of the earth, like, and, and senescent cell, you know, like, like, you know, biological time. Yeah. Turnover. Literal time. Yeah. Entropy and then time. we think of wisdom as like, okay, you've experienced a lot of time. And a lot of, you know, and in a sense, a lot of reps. And so sometimes you look at the older people and you go, you know, you're probably right. Like, it's not going to matter by the end of this project, whether we do it this one way or this way, regardless of my knowing about the better way to do it. Yeah. That's an interesting Technology accelerates time. And I'll get to what I mean by that in a second. Not being resistant to that, like that version of wisdom becomes less valuable because you because the wisdom is super contextualized of what to an tools, environment yeah right and if it's, the environment if the environment is like running away from you then then right. a, a really well-worn wisdom is now not not just unproductive it's counterproductive right because you're, you're prescribing towards a world that doesn't exist anymore well a lot of times we have to use the new tools to to what whatever they are like the 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 new problems are appearing so quickly yeah. <laughs> that we have to use the new tools to solve them because we didn't have the context oh. to invent the prior tools. Yeah. So 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 in your in your trade off of you know exploring a new thing versus exploiting what works, like like you said, learning has to count as work in that engineering context because if you don't discover the new tool to solve the next biggest problem then we don't then like progress doesn't continue and it gets really weird when you start thinking about computers 
And the way I like to think about this is like, the reason that self-driving cars are suddenly going to be better than humans very suddenly. And then we're yeah. like, wow, well, how did that happen? It's because they yeah. can all talk to one another and not in the clunky way that we do at school where we think we're good. You know, oh, I got a PhD, man. You're nothing compared to a connected neural network of beings yep. experiencing the same yep. feeding external input into the, the collective system. So, right? I've, got so a, like, I've got a few thoughts here on this. Yeah, this is this time is, the, is different when you, when you all just merge your database at the, at the core. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then you can redistribute so, out instantaneously. And, and right, this is so. This is you know one. This is the idea of punctuated equilibria. That uh, you know we know that well the, the the theory of punctuated equilibria is that populations and and population level genetics will stay relatively static for a period of time. And then there will be a sudden violent shift in population level genetics um, in which um, in a very, very, very short amount of time, a, a, a population level gene pool changes really drastically, usually due to some form of crisis that forced a genetic bottleneck. And we know that that should happen mimetically and technologically as well. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to go down the um, Lena Adelman hole of whether or not memes or memes if they're trapped in brains or technology do they count as different things no for christ's sakes they're all memes um but mimetically we should expect something like punctuated equilibria as well and we know this has already happened in machine learning before where we get periods of like perceived stasis and then suddenly there's a a quantum shift in in model quality or model performance. And as this does keep happening, it's, it's of course happening at a, at a quicker pace these days. So that's, that's the, the first thought is, is you're right. And, and the second thought is, is that the consequence of that is something I've, I've said to, to colleagues before is that everything will feel like 2015 for a while until one day it never does ever again. And it will, it will feel like it came out of nowhere. You will feel like you basically are still in the same timeline until there is a sharp discontinuity and a narrow combination of otherwise laterally cascading emergent general purpose technologies fundamentally change much of how we relate to one another, the ecology, work, other forms of intelligence, play, and it will happen quite quickly. Um, the the predecessor to that, but what you described of like the, the problem of, of tool adoption, I've been discussing with a colleague who is uh, by a, a combination of hook and crook uh, learning React Native now, which is the JavaScript framework for you know making multi-platform applications, really popular for making you know one code base that runs on iOS and Android kind of thing. And we, we were shaking our heads at it. And I, I related to him that that JavaScript is capitalism as trapped as code. Like JavaScript is just about the most capitalist thing possible. And this is not a derogatory sense. I mean that, but like it was cobbled together in like four weeks by the team at, at what was it? Netscape? I think cobbled this together. Yeah. yeah. Mozilla or Netscape? I, I don't know which it might've been Netscape at the time. And then basically, cause they, they've got the, and then Ike left. They've, they've got the, like the original Mozilla. like plans from it. It was basically written in a month. And it runs on everything and it runs everywhere. It runs your backend. It runs your web pages. It runs the apps on your phone. It runs the apps on your laptop. Uh, we are using JavaScript right now. 
and wherever you got this app is probably using, wherever you got this podcast is probably using JavaScript. And when I sign off this and go back to working in Notion, I'll be using JavaScript. And then when I use Slack, I'll be using JavaScript as well. It ate everything. And it ate everything because of the law of the instrument. It ate everything because it is a good enough solution at everything and then got ported to solve all problems. And if you know JavaScript, you can more or less now write everything and they're continuing to open up new avenues for you to write that thing you shouldn't be able to write in JavaScript. Now you can write in JavaScript. Um, and I say it's most capitalistic because the incentive structure that every young team finds themselves in is move fast, just try it out, um, get something fast time to market because the only thing that matters in war is speed and, and just see if your hypothesis about a thing is correct. Okay, what do I get? Just pick up whatever you know, run with it. It's probably JavaScript, go. Um, and so you end up using the a almost correct tool to build the maybe right thing. And then as you find out that the thing is was the right thing to do, you are very strongly disincentivized to go back and rebuild it properly in a language that would make more sense for what you're trying to achieve. You're instead incentivized to go, okay, now, now figure out the other hard parts of product market fit and continue to do that and then keep playing that game. And because that's the structure of the game, um, build quickly, find the thing that sells, and then sell the hell out of it. Um, JavaScript ate everything, and it's going to continue to eat everything. Um, it is the it is the ultimate implement or the the ultimate instrument here is a a language cobbled together in four weeks. Why again? Because the law of the instrument. And it has eaten everything and will continue to eat everything. Your children will grow up writing JavaScript and there's nothing we can do to stop it. Will we be laughing about it then the way that we laugh about COBOL now? No, <laughs> like, we'll probably be still out there hiring JavaScript developers. No, we'll probably be freaking out about it the way we're freaking out about like HGP. Like, oh God, this did not. I cannot believe we recobbled together this framework to do everything ranging from serving static pages to like real-time content streaming. This was not what this was supposed to be for. So, so I guess the market economist answer would be that that's the market solving for what is maybe the still actually the optimal solution. Yeah. But I guess then the question is the, the optimal the solution for what? Yeah. For right. product market okay. fit. So, yeah. Yeah, if you're, so the thing if you're, I if you're do a there hardened is... if you're a hardened engineer and you're like, yeah, but that's not the right way to do it. No one gives a shit. It was the fast way to do it, right? And that's what the market required, right? So, so then I guess to what extent does that? Wow, oh, man, there's a lot of threads I want to pull. Uh, leaning on your expertise, I guess in sure. the AI space, is this, or maybe this is another way to think of, think of it. Is that phase of the development of a product or a tool necessary where you use whatever you've got to solve the problem and then refine it later over time? And then can that be accelerated by the fact that computers can do more reps than we can yeah. at that testing because they can unify? So is, right. it just, is it just part of the evolution of software that you've got to start with shitty JavaScript so that you can get the reps <laughs> in to get to like, okay, here are the ways to optimize the problem right now is humans aren't so good at that because we just keep building more complicated things with the shitty software. It makes me wonder if there's a bridge there where you can eventually have the system take over and say, right. you know what, we're going to automatically bridge this into this better way of doing this. So that's the hope. 
so the, with the, intelligent the, machines. Right. So I, I understand. I understand this. This the shape upgrade of the question to Rust or whatever the fuck that means. You know. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I I get the shape of the question and and the the futurist in me says that we're leaving the era of um coder with three monitors and colorful keyboard and stack overflow open and then an IDE open in the other and we're entering the era of uh cyborg development in which we are going to have coder with mechanically assisted code development process embedded in IDE. And this is what we're already starting to see with things like GitHub Colab, where, um, or sorry, GitHub Copilot, I'm sorry. Copilot, um, yeah. Yeah, Copilot, where where they've trained GPT-3 on um, GitHub. <laughs> Lord, that's a sentence. And yeah. Uh, um, and is it perfect? No, of course it's not perfect. The whole point was that it wouldn't be perfection. Um, it would be, could I get one engineer to do what it took three engineers to do? And how do I do so? Well, you mechanically enhance the developer, uh, which cuts at the core of of the process of cyborgization. Um, and we're not replacing the developer. We're mechanically enhancing. So what does this mean? Well, it, it, there's one of two stories that unfold from that. One is, great, now I can lay off a lot of my workforce. The second is, okay, great, now I've got extremely enhanced productivity. And the truth will probably fall in some distribution pattern between those two those two antipoles. Um, but hybrid chess. What's that? I said hybrid chess. I've been arguing for years that I that like eventually you're going to go into court, and if your lawyer doesn't have a little droid next to them bleeping yeah. and blooping at them, you're going to yeah. be like, get out of here and get me one that has a droid. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel yeah. the same well, way about my doctor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, and that's and that's that's going to be the cyborg. That's already what we're seeing for cyborgization is that you know we don't need anyone with holes drilled in their head yet, but we do need humans assisted by um, by mechanism. And so, so to answer your question, um, what do we get? Do we do we get to the place where we can have things written right from the first try? And we we probably will, and it will probably be a, a few steps in front of us, but it will be that um, more and more time is spent with human machine collaboration on planning and specification and planning and specification are the only interesting parts. Um, they are then mechanically ingested and transformed into finished code work product that meets a rigorous definition of expectation for spec and humans are largely out of that process. And uh, a developer is going to be one who's very good at thinking through things like emergent properties and externalities and mapping between stakeholder requirements and what the capabilities of the system are. And of course, being able to manually go in and say, oof, this is almost right, but we need to do this, 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 and this. But a, a lot of what's going to happen is going to be transcoding um, specification and modeling language from human conversation down to that and then that into code automatically and and when we get there we will get more things built with the right tools on the first try because it is easier for machines to readapt and transcode human thought into different frameworks than to retool humans to think in new and different ways with new tools 
hey, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the the future of the law of the instrument. Which is that you just trust the computer to tell you which tool to do you just trust R2D2 to tell you which tool you should use? I mean, he's right most of the time. That's <laughs> probably true. Uh, yeah, I was thinking like, I mean, it's the funny thing about thinking about code versus law, right? It's really easy yeah. to imagine it in the code context. So we often start talking there and then yeah. drift into the human side of it. But like you can, there are programming languages that are computationally verifiable. You can test that they are bug free using another computer. That's no different than how we treat contracts. The other computers are just judges and lawyers and a system that, you know, hammers them through the judicial system. So yeah. like the fact that we're starting to make that bridge with things like GPT-3 are super exciting over on the human squishy side too, because if we're starting to be able to bridge that thing of like, like you were saying, the human, the part where humans are bad at explaining things or, or articulating needs or goal states or aligning goal states with actual, you know, like the, the outcome that would actually be optimal, I guess. Uh, like that's why lawyers exist to sit in a room and go, are you, are you sure that's what you mean? Because that could be misconstrued as this in another Uh, context. yeah. Yeah. And like currently we just pay other humans $800 an hour to debug the the stupidity of most other humans. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say it's not fair to call it stupidity. The communication lack is hard. Of prowess with the clusterfuck that is the law that is navigating modern yeah. legal structures. Yeah. And La- lang- language is hard. Thinking is hard. Precise language <laughs> is hard. Precise thinking is really hard. Semiotics is hard. Codification is hard. Getting what was in your head and the symbols in your head into codified thing that will with that you can put the boots to and it doesn't crumple is really hard so then the interesting th- so the thing that gets me to is okay why would the droid be better given even things that you and I've talked about previously like the idea that a lot of these biases will be built in and you started the episode talking about the idea that you know even as you watch machine learning and and data sets you can see this sort of bias exists. You just call it the exploitation, you know, versus exploration sort of axis. Can we still trust the machines more, even if they have this bias because they don't also have an emotional attachment to it that has nothing to do with sense at all? No, no. You know what? And that's that's a lot of people I work with are just like, they just, they just, it makes them feel sad. The idea that we may have moved past email as the way to talk <sighs> no, about things no, with your coworkers. You know, you know what? You know what? Without Slack be a whole just separate, makes me sad. That this would be a whole separate <laughs> cluster of episodes. Um, we're going to have to talk about, oh, Kurt, did I lose you? Do, I don't do think I still so. have you? Okay, good. I think my, yes. my bandwidth is there for a sec. Um, so we're going to have to have a whole cluster of episodes where we talk about why emotions, um, the, the, the <laughs> long story short is emotions help you make, yeah, emotions make you help, help make you make better decisions. Like that's, that's long and short. I know that, you know, everyone wants to, or not everyone, 
um, a very narrow subset of think boys and think girl are very interested in like getting rid of the emotions because something, something pure logic, something, something, um, you know, heuristics are all cortical, something, something. Yeah. The Vulcans. Um, <laughs> yeah. The Vulcans, the rationalists. I don't know. Um, but, uh, your, your emotions evolved, like not our best hypothesis is that your emotions did not evolve as like oops i guess we get those too like this is not antagonistic pleiotropy or like a weird like secondary phenomenon um they help you make better motivated behaviors they help you make better decisions um and they they're important for guiding how you go through reality and to like we have real world examples of like what happens when you lose emotions um and we have words to point to that like sociopath yeah (laughs) um, who who are who make miserably bad decisions often um, lest we um, accidentally fall into our like post Goldman Sachs elevator Twitter like greater Western uh, worship of the like capitalist sociopath. No, those fuckers make awful decisions. Like, just happens to be that there might be a handful of them that are also really high IQ and end up on Wall Street, and we ended up culturally aggrandizing that. But but the reality is your your emotions and your ability to like feel feel things not just like feel feelings, but like the physical embodiment of them are really critical to making better decisions. Anyway, I got to jump. We got to wrap. This has been a fun one. I was going to say like, and subscribe because we'll get to the rest of what you were just saying. Excellent. Let me uh, get this sucker. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.